Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I am your host, Josh Lindsay, from the Movie Proposal Podcast. And with me is the first-time filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey, Josh. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Good. Thank you. Awesome. And with us, as always, is our trusty, dusty, research extraordinaire sound guy, Jason Rugg. Hey there. So today... We want to hear from Christian. Um, this is kind of behind-the-scenes look of making a documentary. She's learning as she's going. She has real-life experience. This is raw and fresh. So you are getting it like, like the best you could ever get it if you want to learn how to make your own documentary. But today, Christian's got an awesome story she wants to share with us. You know, she's always got news, and there's— I'm sure we haven't even heard half of all the stories that she could tell. That's true. But there's something going on right now I'd, l- I'd like for you to share with us. Awesome. Well, you know, this question, this last question, who is that, Leroy Howell? He asked, how do you get access to the behind-the-scenes the public doesn't usually get to see? Great question. Um, and you do that by listening to this podcast. You, <laughs> you get to hear behind-the-scenes stuff. Also, on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, we're putting up stuff. And eventually, we will have more behind-the-scenes uh, footage because we got a lot of that. So, um, But I do want to tell you guys, I'm super jazzed today about something that just happened. Um, and so I, I want to talk about it. And it sort of um, goes with a larger theme Um about um, how working on this film has changed me um, and the relationships. We talked about the relationships that we've made going forward. Um, One of the things I think, if I was to ask, if I polled documentary filmmakers, I think the one thing that we would say, I would guess, that is true among all of us is that you cannot make a documentary and not care about your subject matter. And once you get th- do this deep dive into the people's lives or into the story you're telling, it just like sucks you in. And if it doesn't, your documentary is gonna suck because <laughs> you know, like you want don't want that. No, you want to be sucked in, and you want your audience to be sucked in. And so you almost have a difficult time separating yourself between you know you and your own life and and. My husband will tell you I've done done that terribly. (laughs) My whole life in this film are completely interwoven. And uh, wonderful surprises happen that you don't expect. That's another thing that all of them will say. Even Ken Burns says, you just never know. It's like an adventure that you're going on, and you never know what's going to happen. So in the beginning, when I first met Danny in – Normandy. Normandy, thank you very much. Uh, Flo was wearing a jacket, and Flo said, this jacket that I have on was given to my mother in 1944 by an American GI. And I was like, really? Is your mother still alive? And she's like, well, yes, she's right here. And so she introduced me to her mother and her father, and her mother, Danny, told me about three soldiers that were with her back when she was five years old. So Danny was five when D-Day happened, and um now, this is what happened in this St. Marie Dumont area. It's called the American Sector, and you have um, the 82nd Airborne, the 101st Airborne, the 173rd. They all jumped in the middle of the night, like 1, 2, 3 o'clock, uh, behind enemy lines. Then at 6 a.m., you have the onslaught from the beach at Utah Beach. And then after uh, the paratroopers disabled a whole bunch of the guns and things so the people could land, the soldiers went on to the beach. They went into St. Marie Dumont, passing right in front of Danny's door, where they gave her candy and gum and things she'd never tasted before. Um, and then they rolled on 
And so St. Marie Dumont and St. Mary Glees were taken very easily, super quickly. And so there wasn't a lot of damage to these places. Whereas Carenton, which is about 15 minutes away, there was a huge battle and I don't think was taken until like June 12th, something like that. So, um, and it had a lot of damage there. So, um, but after all of everybody kind of went through, Utah Beach was still used as a port, it's called a gooseberry port. A gooseberry port is one where it's just um, beach, and then out beyond the beach, you have boats that kind of come in. And it's not a it's not a permanent port. It's just there until they could take Cherbourg, which was the Allied objective a little farther north, where the Titanic used to be docked, where it's a big deep water port, and they can get their boats in there. Little bit of history trivia for you. All right. So, so they just ferry from the larger yes. ships to mm-hmm. the okay. And so you had two ports in Normandy. You had the Gooseberry ports at Utah Beach, and you had Mulberry ports, um, like at Aramanche. And there, Winston Churchill said, "We have got to figure out how to create a port off of these beaches. Um, you know, that's not until we can get Cherbourg." And it was a question that they didn't think that they could solve, but they eventually did. They took huge caissons, and on the mulberry ports, they sunk them way out, and then they would dock to those big caissons, and then they would take, you know, landing craft closer in. So that's how they would get in. Um, So anyway, in order to run this gooseberry port, what do you need? I don't know. People? Exactly. People. (laughs) So well done, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> they will. Uh, there has to be some sort of sustainment force, right? Engineers and um, mechanized truck units and all of that, because there's all this equipment and all these men. I think over a million men and equipment passed through the Utah Beach, which is super short. Like it maybe is, you know, five miles long or something like that. It's really a small beach, and they needed. Uh, they got so much men and equipment through there, but you have to have people manning the port, and so there were sustain forces there. So that is who I think these three soldiers are that began to become friends with the Patrice family. And she talks about them. She remembers them well, even though she was five. There's Harry, Tall Larry, and Big Smitty. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like American GI names, right? 1944. And so from the time I met her, she asked me to find these GIs. And uh, I was not successful. She wanted to find their family. Um, but I did find Harry Kropnicki's uh I have some information on Harry Kropnicki. Now, the reason is because Danny had an article, and and I've learned since that Harry Kropnicki's wife, Eleanor, was a journalist. And so she had the ability to, um, you know, had connection with journalists to get this little story in either a paper or a magazine. And it's a beautiful little picture of Danny. And down below, the little caption says, Eleanor Kropnicki, she would get home letters home from her husband, Harry, in the war. He would say that he had another girl. And, you know, she would cry and be all upset until the next letter came. And there was a little picture of Danny. And Harry explained, this is my new girl, Danny oh Patrice. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, um, it's so not like getting a text. Right. Waiting ten seconds. A lot of time to wait. <laughs> right, right. So anyway, um, Danny had become. She calls herself the little mascot of these soldiers, and they would have lunch at her family's house or sometimes dinner, and they forged this relationship. And eventually, Harry brought Eleanor back to show him, you know, show her Utah Beach and Danny and all of that. But over time, they lost touch with one another, and Danny never knew what happened to him. So I would like made this my mission to find out what happened to Harry Kropnicki. I did find him on, find a grave that he is buried in Florida next to his wife, Eleanor. He died on December 5th, I mean, sorry, February 5th, 2000. So almost exactly yesterday, it was 19 years ago. Well, I started doing more research recently because I'm going to Florida and I'm going to Florida tomorrow to go and meet with the 101st Airborne. They are voting as to whether or not to give us money and, and be part of our project. So I'm going to make a presentation, and I'm going to the Tampa area. And I thought, I wonder if Harry Kropnicki's grave is somewhere nearby. Well, sure enough, it is. <laughs> it's right on the way. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm going to surprise Danny, and I'm going to take a picture of it, and I'm going to send her the grave. And then I thought... What am I thinking about? Of course I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ask her if she can write a letter and she has anything to say to him. And so, of course, she did. And she was so excited. And so she wrote me a letter, which I've had translated into English. So I'm going to hand write it. And I'm going to go do a little memorial ceremony for Harry. And I'm going to take a French and American flag, just like they do at the Normandy American Cemetery, flowers. And I'm going to take a picture of Danny and this little letter. And I was going to read it and take a picture of the grave for her to have and put it on find a grave and tell this story so that any of his family members may see it one day. But then I thought, I wonder if there's any family members in the area. (laughs) So I got on Ancestry.com. I got connected to his great niece who had no idea about this story. She has a son who's obsessed with World War II. (laughs) And so as I began to tell her the story about her own great uncle, it like opened up this whole new world. And now they may come to Normandy to meet Danny. Oh, my goodness. Which would be amazing. (laughs) Well, in the middle of doing all of that, I then decide, I told other people about it. You know, I'm going down to Florida. I'm meeting with the 101st. I'm also going to do a breakfast of some locals in the villages to tell them about the project. And they said, well, we'd like to come. So as of right now, I have like 15 people that are coming to this memorial ceremony (laughs) to hear about Harry Kropnicki and this relationship with Danny. We've got a bagpipe. Piper, who's going to come, somebody to play taps. Uh, It's going to be incredible. But what's going to be so neat about that is this story is not going to be lost to history. People are not going to forget Harry. Well, how did I learn this? Flo Plana actually taught me this is how to honor our veterans. You tell their story. You go to their graves. One time, he found something in an antique store. It was a relic. It had... Um, the soldier's name. He looked up the soldier's name. Turned out he was buried near the antique store. The day that he went there, it was the guy's birthday. <laughs> so Flo and a bunch of people went to celebrate his birthday and give him a toast and talk about his story. Wow. So for me, this is something the French have taught me, and I really hope that we can pass that on. So 
That's one exciting story. That is exciting. That's incredible. Thrilled about that. I can't wait for that to happen. Um, So the trip is tomorrow. So next time we get together, we can hear more about it. Absolutely. Yes, it's February 7th in case anybody is wondering what day is. Um, But just so we don't need to go into this now, but I want you to remember, I want to tell you the story about Harold Giannette. I want to tell you the story about my Uncle Jody and the bracelet. Dick Winters is another fantastic story. Savannah Woods found her uncle in Normandy. She was on our crew. It's a great story. And, oh, this Bernie Nygaard story. It's incredible. Oh, and Daniel (laughs) Bonanzio, Daniel Bonanzio, he's a veteran that found out about me and found out that I was coming down there to Tampa. I'm going to meet him in a few days. And now he has the opportunity to go back to Normandy to be celebrated by the French people, all because of our project. That's awesome. So yeah. cool. So anyway, these things happen during a documentary. <laughs> you got to be prepared to have your life shaken up. <laughs> anyway. Well, well, very cool. Well, I hope you guys are enjoying these podcasts, getting a behind-the-scenes look of, of how to make a documentary and all the amazing things that can happen along the way. So thank you for sharing, Christian. Yeah. Um, So until next time, uh, thanks for listening um, to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell, and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Thanks, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye.